It is good to have Bonnie back. She's gone quite a while there helping take care of her sister there in California. It was just the warm weather is the real reason she was gone. Oh, Idaho. Was it Idaho? Oh, okay. Wow. That's not as warm then. Never mind. Doesn't fit. Roy, aren't you from Idaho? Where's Roy at? Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 still. Is there a good part of Idaho? I always thought Idaho was kind of like the Galilee of it. Can anything good come out of you know Nazareth? Exactly. Again, outside of potatoes, does anybody know of anything? (laughs) Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. We'll be starting a ministry to those from Idaho after the service. Romans 5, 5. And a hope... As soon as I start. And hope make it not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we ask your, <coughs> your blessing upon the message. I pray, Lord, that you would work, <coughs> that you be glorified and honored in all that's said and done. Lord, I pray that you would help my voice and, and be able to calm the coughing down, Lord, that I could speak your word clearly. Lord, that you would bless it, your hand would be upon it. And Lord, that you would use it to feed your people, to strengthen us, to draw us closer to you, especially as we look at something so important tonight that so many question and wonder about and get confused on. Lord, I pray that we could leave here with clarity. And Lord, even as your word finishes, how this, the, the point being made in your word should lead us to joy in you, to rejoice in what you have done for us. So Lord, help us to focus on your word. I pray that you work. And Lord, if there is anyone here who's never truly been converted, Lord, I pray for their conviction, that drawing in their conversion. <coughs> Lord, I pray and ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so really since Romans chapter, well, chapter 1, 2 is when he really began laying the foundation. Paul has been driving at one minute. That's what I'm going through right now. That one's a better one, huh? If I pass out, what'd you say? I know, it's from Idaho. That's, that's what I'm worried about. I mean, if it was a potato, that'd be all right. Oh, my God. Well, I can't even talk now because it's so big. (laughs) No. (laughs) So, really, since chapter 1, he has been driving at a truth. This is, like, too big. (laughs) That we are justified by faith alone in Christ. That this is how a man 
has any ability at all to somehow stand righteous before God. And so he's been proving it over and over that man is justified by faith alone. When we came into chapter 5, and this is one of the greatest chapters in the book of Romans. Matter of fact, at some point in the future, I would like to do a series just on some of the great chapters that we have covered. In Romans, chapter 5 would definitely be one of those. When we came into chapter 5, again, he has just spent chapter 4 really laying out with the illustration of Abraham, how we are justified by faith alone. He brought out some great points that we looked at, some benefits of this justification of what has taken place. He... Uh, um, we dealt with the armistice, how we're at peace with God. That's not the only peace and, you know, I'm, I'm feeling all right, I have no anxiety. He's saying, no, we were enemies of God, but now we are at peace. And just to think about all that that means. And then he dealt with the fact that we have access now. That before, we didn't have any access to God, but now we do because of justification uh, um, and, and, and through Christ and through his shed blood. And then he finished up with dealing with our future. This is where he's going still with right now. He said in verse 2, And rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And from there he went on to a quick principle that he brought up, finishing with how experience and experience hope. That glory of God dealt with our future. How one day we will partake in God's glory. When we see Christ, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All that awaits us in our future. So Paul is still now in our text. He's continuing on with that idea of hope. All right? Now, and the point he is making is one point. Now, I'm going to use this text like he did to try and develop it, but it's really just one point. I'm going to put it in two, in two points for this message right now, but he's driving at one main point. Even right now within Christianity, there are multitudes of denominations. The overwhelming vast majority, hands down, all believe that you can lose your salvation. Almost all of them. Even if they claim you can be justified by faith through grace, they believe, though, you can lose it. That you could fall away, that that you can get to a point of a certain amount of sin in your life, that it's gone. And that it has to be reclaimed. Multitudes are confused along that line about whether, uh, if you are eternally saved once you come to Christ. I remember being a, uh, just starting to serve the Lord. And hearing Jimmy Swagger preach. Tell me who Jimmy Swagger is, that Pentecostal preacher. And uh, I remember hearing him as a teenager. And he said the most, I can quote him, the most damnable doctrine he knew of was eternal security. And I thought, wow. Now, I'm only 16, but I knew he was wrong on that one. Multitudes are, are confused by it. They don't understand it. So Paul, in our text, is really countering an argument that he knew existed. That if a person does receive salvation, justification by faith, is it maintained then by their life? How is it kept? Now, the text here is not exhaustive on the topic by any means, but it is foundational. I mean, there's many reasons why one cannot lose our salvation. So this isn't an exhaustive study on it, but it's an important one because it is the foundation as to why we cannot. I mean, there's other reasons given in Scripture. For instance, when you are born again, you are born again of an incorruptible seed. Incorruptible. You know what that means? 
it cannot be corrupted. That was tough, wasn't it? It cannot be corrupted. John chapter 10, Jesus said, I will never perish. Never. I mean, there's many reasons we can get into why we could not. But we will deal with what Paul talks about here in Romans chapter 5. Let me mention this briefly. I did put it in the introduction. What happens when a Christian does sin? Alright, so what happens... When it, this is something, by the way, that after you got saved, this, this particular issue we're dealing with now should be like week five or six or seven of your discipleship program. That you sit down with somebody and they go over this with you as a new believer, because this is foundational as to what happens when a Christian does sin. Does he lose his salvation? Hebrews chapter 12 answers that question as well as other places, but Hebrews chapter 12 deals with it. God will chastise you. As a matter of fact, if you sin and you have no chastisement, you're not God's. He says, you're not mine, because my children I will chastise when they sin. And he makes it clear, I'm doing this because I love you, because you are my child. He doesn't say, I'm done with you, any more than when Daniel sinned against me as a boy, which just rarely happened. Did he cease being my son? No. He was born of my seed. That's not going to change. The same is true when you're born again of this incorruptible seed. So when a Christian sins, the Lord will chastise you. And by the way, we also know that if it gets to a point that you do not repent through his chastisement, which is designed... See, it's amazing how the Lord uses it to make, make us better. It's designed to produce a measure of holiness in your life. It's designed to change you. Again, we have a culture today in Christianity that is running away from holiness. How wicked and how vile. How carnal. It is designed, that chastisement, to bring you to a place of, of holiness, of, uh, of, of purity, of being a clean vessel that God wants to use. But if you don't respond to that, there is a sin unto death. Our text starts with a powerful statement in verse 5. And hope maketh not ashamed. <clears throat> This he is dealing with then is a certain hope. What he means by that, hopeth make it not ashamed, it means it won't disappoint, it won't fail. This is certain. So what Paul is now going through, he said, listen, he's, he, he introduced it a couple of verses prior in verse 2. Now he's going off that point of what is coming. And he said, listen, this is a certain hope. This is going to happen. You're not going to be disappointed. This is true. Once God saved you and justified you, it's final, it's complete, it's done forever and ever. Because he made reference to heaven, to us uh, partaking in the glory of God earlier in verse 2. And he's saying, this is a certain hope. This will happen. God never disappoints those who hope in him. So Paul is going to go on to show why this hope will not make Ashamed. Why it will not disappoint. Why it will not fail. That's the argument he's making. We all have heard it, and maybe even some of you have made that argument. Yes, I, I know Christ died on the cross. I know that his blood, you know, is sufficient. But what if I... And they go off on a tangent on something. 
this is really what Paul's coming at. He's saying, listen, you, you don't get it. And what he's trying to do is to change your perspective. To try and get it to a place where it makes perfect sense why you can never lose your salvation. Because really, in truth, it is absurd. When you think about all that God did, all that Christ did, to think somehow, I can lose it. Paul focuses on two reasons that I'm going to put down here. The love of God and the life of God. The love of God and the life of God. And so those are the two points we're going to be looking at here this evening. First off, let's talk about the love of God. After he said, hope make it not a shame, he said this. Because, so he's, he's giving reasons now. Why will God not disappoint? Why is this hope certain that I am going to heaven? Why is this hope certain that, I, I, I mean, this thing is really done? He said, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. Now notice, he's going to give two reasons as a result of the love of God. God's Spirit and God's Son. Number one, because the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Six through eight, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man, uh, um, uh, man, some would even dare to die. But God committed, uh, back to his love, his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he starts off, he said, here's why the hope is certain. The love of God, which is shed abroad in our hearts. The word shed abroad there has the idea of lavishly poured out to the point of overflowing. I mean, what he's going to demonstrate through his love, when you put all this together, is tremendous. It truly is incredible how much God loves us. It is this love that anchors us to God. In chapter 8, he's going to end up saying, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? So it's God's love that is driving this. I mean, you think in Ephesians chapter 3, when Paul tries to almost describe the love of God, the vastness, the breadth, the height, the depth of the love of God. How we're to be in that same chapter, as well as in uh, another one of his epistles, the importance of us, I think it's in Philippians, rooted and grounded in this love. It's what anchors us. It's, it's, it's that love, that emotion. When we talk about God's holiness and God's justice and, 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 and God's grace and God's love, it's God's love that is driving us to say, no, listen, you are mine. And he says, look at how I've demonstrated it to you. Look what I've done. Don't question it. And so the first thing he brings up is the giving of the Holy Spirit of God. The giving of the Holy Spirit of God, which is given unto us. That's the first demonstration. You see, he didn't just justify us when you put your faith in Christ. He didn't just justify you. At that exact same moment, you know what he did? He, in, he indwelled you with his Spirit. Right then and there. I mean, if you love someone, do you not want to be with them? He's saying, listen, I want to be with you. We are now the temple of the Holy God. His Spirit indwelt you the very moment that you came to faith in Christ. 
That's how much he loves you. You think of who you are and how wretched you are. And you think of this love that is just poured out lavishly that he made the choice to do. Not based on who you are, but based on who he is. And he says, my love will be demonstrated in this fashion. I will give my spirit. I'll indwell him. And you know comes with that indwelling? You are sealed unto the day of redemption. Sealed unto the day of redemption. With this, I'm not going to spend too much time there, but I do need to mention it. Because Scripture does in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. With the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit comes responsibility. And why would it not? Why is it that today so often Christians are just trying to see how far from God they can get and somehow still be right? Why not run towards Him? Really, I don't get that. I don't get the mentality today to see, I want to know how carnal I can be without it actually being wrong. I mean, where's your mindset then? With the indwelling comes responsibility. You have been bought and paid with a tremendous price. And it goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are His. So He gave us His Spirit as a demonstration of this love, which seals us into the day of redemption, and then His Son, verse 6 through 8. He says this, This is the result of His love as we see in verse 8. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Let me stop right there. Now as we, He gets into this, He's going to show how the death of Christ was an amazing demonstration of His love. He's going to tie this together in 9 and 10 of why we are eternally secure. Again, He's using this segment here just to try to get you to realize this. All right? Forget about eternal security for a second. That is what this is about. But just focus on here the incredible love God had to show in order to just justify you. All right? Just, just to put you in a place where salvation can happen. Think of the amount of love and grace that had to be demonstrated. If it's not lavishly poured out to the point of overflowing, this ain't happening. He wants you to see the depth of God's love. How amazing it is that has made salvation possible. He starts off and says, now, he, first thing I want you to remember is this, that this took place when you were without strength. The word means helpless. When there was nothing you could do to save yourself. Not one thing. There was no scheme you could devise to justify yourself. Although mankind's trying it, none of it will work. There's nothing you can do. You, when it comes to the need of justification, you are completely without strength. There is no way you can make an atonement. There is no way you can make a, a means of redemption possible. There is no way it's impossible for you to put away the wrath of God. Let me quote from one commentator. I like his words on this subject. He said, while we were still helpless, while we had no strength, while we were impotent, while we were powerless, while we were totally unable to free ourselves from sin, from its power, from its presence, think about this. Think what God did in His love. This is where you were at. You see, so often we bring salvation down to a ten-word prayer. We have no appreciation for what took place. 
You are here, powerless, unable to free yourself from sin, from its power, from its presence, from its wages. We were all under the control of Satan. While we were headed for hell, we had no power over death. While we were paralyzed by the fall, paralyzed by the effects of Adam and Eve's sin, we had no moral ability to do what pleased God. While we were the enemies of God himself, hostile towards God. You are in a condition without strength. You had no hope of salvation. None. And he says, now get this, he makes out one point. It's almost a side note to this, and then he gets back to, the, back to the main point. He said, in due time, when Christ died for the ungodly. And it's a great point I always love to think about. It ties him in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time came. I mean, just think about how perfect the world was when Christ came for the gospel. You had a Roman power in place that was dominating the known world. You say, it was the, is that, isn't that a bad thing? It was not. Know what it gave to the entire region why the gospel was going out? Peace. Know what it gave the ability to go from nation to nation and travel. From nation to nation and travel. Because no who's in control? One government was. Know what it also brought? One language. The Greek language. A common language that the people were talking about, that they would, that they would, that when, when education was taking place and schooling was taking place, when Paul traveled, he wasn't speaking in Hebrew everywhere he went. The common language was Greek. So, in history, this would go back prior to the Roman time, from the establishment when, uh, uh, oh, I can't believe I think it was, who, who was the Grecian conqueror? Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great came in, and, and people began to realize the, 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 how uh, eloquent the Greek language is and how expressive it is, I should say, it became the dominant language that schools would teach in. And so now you have a language, you have roads, you have a measure of peace in the known world. I mean, when the perfect time came, God sent forth His Son. Now, notice what it says in verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not only did he die for those who had no strength to save ourselves. He points out this. He died for those who are ungodly. We were rebellious towards God, rebellious towards His law, rebellious towards His will. The children of wrath, doing the work of Satan, doing the work of our own flesh. I mean, when God would look on us, really it would produce disgust and anger, wrath. That's who we were. So God's looking down and this is what He sees. We're rebellious, we're ungodly, we want to follow our flesh, we want to do what we want to do, we want to gratify our flesh, we want to feed it, we don't care if it's sin or not, we'll call it whatever we want to. And he points out, and he's going to use two illustrations from it, and Christ died for the ungodly. Again, remember what he's trying to get you to grasp, the depth of the love of God for you. Now, prepositions are important. In verse 6, 
the word for the ungodly, the preposition for. You don't get the preposition right many times, you can build a whole bad doctrine. I mean, you can take the United Pentecostal Church, the oneness movement, which is seeing a rise again, which is just incredible. Please avoid that. Because of not understanding the definition of the, uh, of the preposition for in Acts 2.38, they come up with a wrong meaning, saying you must be baptized in water in the name of Christ specifically for the remission of sins. Because they don't understand the preposition. It's the same one that is used here. For instance, here what it means is, the preposition here means instead of, in place of. By the, that helps when you present the... It also helps when we go through Romans and you understand the context of Romans 5.8. He said, listen, he died in the place of the ungodly. And in, by the way, in, in Acts 2.38, if you come across that, I tie it together in the book of Revelations where it says they gnawed their tongues for pain. Same meaning, same preposition that is used. In other words... In other words, it says they jump for joy. I've used that before. But do they jump to receive joy or because they're in joy? Because they're in joy. That's the same thing that you see in Acts 2.38. The exact same thing. It's because of the remission of sins. Anyhow, back to this. So now he uses some illustrations here. He says, let's take a righteous man. He says, you know what? He says, he wants you to think, Christ died for the ungodly. He wants you to see God's love for you. This ties into eternal security. He says, think about this. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. A righteous man, what it means by that, somebody who's just. Somebody who's respected. Somebody who's honorable. He said, the truth is, you'll, you'll be hard-pressed to find somebody who will actually give their life for a righteous man. He says, I'll take it further. Per, per adventure, I, I, I'd be in trouble finding some to die for a good man. What he means by that is somebody who is, I mean, in a culture and society that is kind and compassionate. That he's always there. A good man. He said, the truth is, there'll be few that would actually give their life for him. He says, but God committed his love toward us. And that why we were yet sinners. He took our place. You can think of all the vileness in this world right now. I mean, you can, you can put images in your mind of the vileness that has taken place. Did you know that person? Christ died for them. To change them. To save them. To put them in a place where their life isn't wasted with, with passions and lusts, but can be in a place for why it was created to actually glorify the Creator. He said, listen, I died for the ungodly. For the wicked sinner. The point being this, if God loves us enough when we are ungodly, vile, wicked, doing the work of Satan, our own flesh. And yet he was still willing, while we're in that condition, to go to the cross, become sin for us, to die in our place, to justify us. Do you not think he will finish the job 
and bring us on to glory? Watch where he goes. Look. Now he goes on to his life. Look at this. That's his whole point there. Look at the next couple of words in verse 9. Much more than. Much more than. I mean, he's going to drive to it right now. He's making his argument. He's unfolding his argument. If God is willing to do all this, all that he did to save us, will he not keep us till glory? I mean, he's given us these greatest gifts through his love, his spirit, his son. Yet will he not keep us? If he loves us that much, what he's willing to do when we're in an ungodly state. So he starts off with much more then. He's saying, is it not much more reasonable to expect this then? See the direction he's going. If he has shed his love abroad in our hearts, if he has given us his spirit, if he's given us his son, will he not take us to glory? Is that not certain? Our hope will not be ashamed. It will not fail. He says, much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Because of his love, it leads to this life that keeps us saved. Paul's saying here, we never have to fear wrath ever. We have been made at peace with God. It's not predicated upon my actions. This is where they all have it on. Listen, godliness is never a path to justification. It's a result of justification. Being saved and having God's indwelling spirit, it, it produces godliness. It is not effectual in your salvation. It's a product of your salvation. To quote one man on this, he said, It is a greater work of God to bring men to grace than being in a state of grace to bring them to glory. Which is Paul's point. Understand what he's saying. He's saying, you know, the more difficult, the more challenging work when it comes to redemption of mankind was the act that took place on Calvary. The amount of grace and love there that God humbled himself, becoming a man, taking sin upon himself, all the shame, all the reproach, the suffering, the separation, all of that. He said, that's the greater work. That's the challenging work. The work of now bringing us to glory is easy compared to that. See, by his life, he is now what? Our high priest that maketh intercession for us. By his life. Paul's saying, listen, think of his argument. If, if he went through all that to save us ungodly, wretched sinners, he's taking us to glory. We don't have to fear wrath. It's done. It's settled. He's saying, look at the, the, the love of God. If he loves you that much, do you think he I love him that much, but you know what? I, I, I didn't finish the job. They still went to hell. That's absurd. And by the way, make no mistake about it, the book of Galatians is clear on this. Now, I do believe there are those, there, I believe there's a mix in those that hold to the belief you can lose your salvation. 
I believe there's many of them who are actually genuinely born again, but more, I'd say more than 50%, are lost and on their way to hell and have no idea. Because what is their faith in? It's in two things. It's in Christ. They believe Christ without, they believe without the shedding of Christ's blood, there is no remission. I have no chance. But the problem is they don't have both feet in there. They only got one. The other foot is on themselves. I got to keep this. At, if, if, that's, if that's where the faith is, listen to me, there is no salvation. That's why I say, every time you hear me give the invitation, and by the way, follow that. Learn how to witness from that. I mean, you hear me say it every, it's not just for the lost. Part of me is hoping that you'll hear it week after week after week. And you'll be effective in your witness. Don't tune it out and walk out. Say, Lord, use it. Put this in my heart. That's why I say week after week, I stress that your faith must be in Christ alone, not in you. If you're sitting here right now and you think you can lose your salvation, that means you have a measure of faith in what you do and not in Christ alone. That is not salvation. Salvation is in Christ alone. I mean, if he, through his love, was willing to go through what he did to save me, who is an ungodly, wretched, rebellious person. If he was willing to do all that he did so that I simply by faith could come to him and stand justified, would he not certainly finish it and take me on to heaven? That's Paul's argument here. How we, have, we don't have to fear from wrath. Now, I mean, one, he, he says over and over, the atonement that is again, the justification that has been made. There, are, there is no charges against me. Is it true or not? Uh, when, I was in, uh, when, I, when I got into that debate, going back when I was in New Guinea, when that Baptist forum had set up the debate between me and a Calvinist. And um, Romans 5 was actually the chapter that I ended up using primarily for the debate. And so... I had, I had said, what I want you to do is I'm going to give you a series of questions. And, and what I'm asking you to do is to give me a yes or no, then explain all you want. But I want a yes or no. I want you to give me a yes or no, and then explain. And so, what I was focusing on was something that I knew he believed. Just like I did. That justification is by faith alone in Christ. I knew he believed it. But he also believed in perseverance of the saints kept him saved. That's a problem. And so I went through it in Romans chapter 5. We'll get into it near the end of the book. And so I asked him, I said, uh, we, we got into it, and, and I got down there how uh, um, so many, many are made righteous. I said, no, are we made righteous? Are we justified? And uh, uh, he agreed, said yes. I said, now, does this cover all of our sins? He said, yes, I got him. I said, so if all my sins are paid for and I stand justified, tell me why again I need to persevere. Because if all my sins are dealt with, all of them, is that true or not? Then why does God have to, you've got to persevere or, or, or you're going to lose it. And of course they get around it being your work saying, God is the one who makes you persevere. Nice little semantics right there. 
Anybody could use that then. Paul is saying, if God did all this to save us who were once enemies of God, ungodly sinners and wretched, where he became sin for me and took my place, would he not then finish the job and take us on the glory? This is why it is a a hope that will not make us ashamed. When we look at the love of God and the life of his son, we can't lose it. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Nothing at all. And then look, he concludes here, I'm done. Look at 5.11. This is in conclusion. Isn't this neat? Here's a result of all this. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. This the only time atonement is, is actually used in the, in the New Testament. It means to be made at one with is really all it means. It, although the word is actually used in other places, it's used as reconciliation, though, in the two other places that it's found in the New Testament. And so Paul's saying here, you know what? I mean, think of how great that is. It's done. I will be made like Christ one day. I will be living in the new earth for an eternity. What a great thought. I, I, I mean, who here is, who, anybody going on vacation here in the next few weeks? Anybody taking off for vacation? Oh, where are you heading to? Colorado Springs. Are you excited about that? Yeah, it doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> like last year, I'll use myself. Last year at this time, I was excited. I don't know why. Going to Israel. I was going to Israel. About a week away. I was thinking about that today. I was driving to church. I was like, you know, last year at this time, I was a week away leaving for Israel. I was excited because of what was coming. Do you understand what's coming? I mean, Bob, right now you're 84. You're 84, right? Three, sorry. Making you older than you are. 83 years old. Those years went fast. I said those years went fast. 83 years. Yeah. <laughs> some, some took longer. Yeah. Yeah. But one day, brother, none of that's going to matter. That's your hope. Do you understand what that does when you're facing trials right now? To realize this world is not, I would sing, but that would be disastrous. This world is not my home. It is not. Nor will I try and force it to mine, in my mind to be just that. This world is in a mess. My hope is in what is to come. Now, granted, while I'm here on this earth, I have a responsibility before God and before my fellow man with the truth that I possess. This is not a case of, okay, we just, just, just let the world go to hell. We're not going to do anything at all. No. You're, I mean, think of what God did to save mankind. That's why we have the command to go uh, uh, um, into all the world, to every creature and preach the gospel. We have the truth. But the reality is it should produce a joy in us. We can rejoice knowing we have a certain hope. 
a hope that make him not ashamed. It will happen. Once God saved us, he saved us. I don't have to fear losing my salvation. With heads bowed and eyes closed.